Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone, the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 27, The Brandon Novak Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited for today. Brandon is someone that many of you have heard of from the Jackass series, Viva La Bam, professional skateboarding, endorsements, working out with Michael Jordan and Gatorade ads and a whole bunch more. We're talking New York Times best-selling author. We're talking celebrity figure. But one thing I love about Brandon is he's real, and he struggled a lifelong journey of sobriety. And in this episode, Brandon talks about how after 13 attempts at rehab, what finally stuck, what the difference was, how he did it, and how you can too, your loved ones, and people you know. So, this is Dave Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. And before we jump out into this episode, I also want to give a shout out to all of you listening. I am so thankful for the privilege to be here today and for us to build this remarkable community of helping one another grow. A giant shout out to our friends in Nepal. Um, again, I'm new to podcasting. I'm learning as I go. And I get these emails every once in a while that, hey, you're ranking in this country, in this country, in that country. And while our number one nucleus of audience is in North America, we have friends in 53 countries and growing right now as we speak. But in Nepal, we're ranked 19 in self-help. So thank you, Nepal. Go. And also, we have a bunch of other friends out there who are living, leaving reviews and just being great supporters, sharing our material. So I want to read a couple from, these are from Apple Podcasts, JK9210. This is a great podcast. It reminds us we're not alone in dealing with hardship. hardship. It shows us other people adversity and how they overcame it. It strengthens us mentally and spiritually. Thank you, JK9210. That really is a blessing because that's exactly what our intent is. Um, go down to Pace Listener saying, I love hearing how people overcome adversity and achieve success. So listen, if you're out there, you like this podcast, it's helping you grow, leave a review, share it. Don't think it goes unnoticed. And after listening to Brandon's story today, please leave comments. And what I'm going to do is go ahead, leave your comment. I'm going to take all the comments ever listed for the show, randomize the number, and I'm going to pull one in a drawing, and whoever wins is going to get a free t-shirt. So before we move on to the interview, which I know, I know you're going to love, I want to say a special shout out to a sponsor, Pam Heinold of Better Homes and Garden Real Estate, Pensacola, Florida. You've heard her on other episodes of the podcast. If you have a home in Pensacola, Florida, you're trying to sell. If you have a home in Pensacola, Florida, you're trying to buy. If you want a beautiful place to rent a home and vacation during the summers, get a nice little tax break, make some income, 
Call Pam. Pam is the expert in this area. There are many great realtors, but out of all of my realtors I know, Pam is at the top. She works with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, which is not only probably the largest in Pensacola. I don't know that for sure. I need to research it, but she's the top at Better Homes and Garden Real Estate again this year. So if you need a great vacation home, primary residence, some rental properties, call Pam. She truly is remarkable at what she does and she supports this show. So let's show her some love and support her. Again, this is Dave Pasqualone. I'm so thankful you're here today. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. Brandon's truly a great dude. I consider him a friend, and I'm so thankful God brought us together. So grab your pen and paper if you're at a desk. If you're running or working out or driving, make sure you put some mental notes in that beautiful brain of yours and enjoy this episode, The Brandon Novak Story. Brandon, thanks for being here today, brother. Thanks for having me, man. I'm honored. Oh, dude, it's my honor. I um, Just so the listeners know how we met, I was sitting here working on my computer, working on the podcast, and like the good cell phones we have, you know, they're listening to everything we say. So I don't know if I told you this, but all of a sudden across my phone comes, you know, remarkable stories on YouTube, right? So it's like stalking me through the phone, but it's helping me. So I see this Brandon Novak um, addiction story and I click it. And I watched the whole hour and seven minutes, man. I was just completely taken and blown away. And then in my heart, I'm like, I want to talk to this guy. I want to get him on the show. He could help so many people. And Brandon has been nothing but a gentleman, ladies and gentlemen. He has been easy to work with, such a great guy. And we've talked for a couple months now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And between his schedule and my schedule, we finally made this happen and you will be listening to this on May 25th. And I had no idea the significance of this date. So as Brandon tells a story, we're going to see how this all ties together in a way that we couldn't have coordinated. So Brandon, how the show works is we go through the past, then we lead up into the present and the future. So you just share your story as you see fit with the audience, uh, the what challenges and circumstances you had to overcome and how you did in the practical steps. So our listeners and loved ones can too. So at this time, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. And ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. Uh, again, and just so you know, a backstory, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You know, Brandon is, was a professional skateboarder, New York's time bestselling author. He was in the famous Jackass series and movies. He was in with uh, Viva La Bam. And he is just an incredible human. He comes from a situation that he's going to disclose, but he's made in loss more money than most people will ever dream of. And yet, despite all these hardships and circumstances, he's here today with us back on his feet and stronger than ever. So Brandon, thank you again for being here. And I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, very gracious introduction, if you will. My introduction is Never looked like that for a long time. <laughs> um, prior to sobriety, my introductions were more so, uh, will the defendant please rise? Um, I was a number, you know, because I spent a lot of time incarcerated. So people 
never really looked forward to seeing me coming. It was always a, it was always in such a way where I, I was going to really leave a, leave a bad taste in their mouth. Um, and you're going to hear in, in my story, it, it's, it's the irony of, of how you've created this, this show to go, if you will, what you just said, you know, people usually generally talk about their past, where they're at now, present to, to where they believe they're headed future. Um, the irony in that is that like when I give my talk, that's exactly what it is. So I, you didn't have to like lay that foundation for me to hopefully abide by it. Cause that's, that's, uh, there's a lot of ironies going on here, you know, the, with the, the date of when this will air, May 25th, the, the, the way that you have this set up, um, I always say, is it odd or is it God? Yeah, I agree, man. There are no accidents. It's 100% God. Yeah. And I've also always, oh, I've learned throughout my, my experience with sobriety uh, is that when I want to make my God laugh, I tell him how my day is going to go. <laughs> That's a good one, man. So I, I never, <laughs> as a kid, I, I, I was growing up and I had a lot of goals. I had a lot of dreams. I had a lot of aspirations and ambitions and and I can promise you, I can promise you through and through, the one thing I never foresaw happening, prayed that it would become a reality, was was me sitting here on your show, uh, sharing my 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 experience, strength, and hopes, a, a, a story, a promising hope, uh, a promising story that delivers a lot of of, of hope and and and, uh, and prosperity. Uh, promise, hope, and freedom that did not consist of a drink or a drug, right? That's that's never what I, I set out to do as a kid. Um, but I, I, I never give the same talk twice. Obviously, I hit the same points, but I just go where I believe I'm, I'm being led to. And and I'm just going to get into where I see fit right now, and, and that looks like this. Hi, my name is Brandon, and I'm an alcoholic. And, and, and what that means when I say that is it's very simple. When I put my hand up and I say, hi, my name is Brandon, I'm an alcoholic, all that simply means is that I'm defiant by nature, I hate authority, and I will never, ever, ever conform unless it becomes my idea. Why? Because I possess this job that places me in a lot of positions I don't like to be in, and it makes me feel a lot of feelings I don't like to feel, and that job simply consists of knowing everything, right? So when you suggest for me what I should do, I suggest for you that you should fuck off because I believe that I know, right? And you're gonna hear my, 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 my story, if you will, that, that my resume stated that I had known some things because I had did some things in life that people, some would equate to success or happiness and that some might even dream of doing it. I come from a really good home, right? If you would've asked me when I first got sober what my home life looked like, I would've said it was the most traumatic, debilitating experience anyone has ever been subjected to. That's not the case. The, the reality is the, the home that I came from, that I was brought up in, the people that resided under that roof did the best that they could with what they had. I've done a lot of internal wor uh, work to, to, to match these external results that you're getting today. Um, so with that being said, I came from a really good home. My mother, uh, 
got a job at the age of 15 drawing blood for $5 a pop, a phlebotomist, if you will. Literally worked her way up the ladder to becoming a nuclear physicist on the board of Mercy Hospital. Two years ago, just retired after 53 years of gainful employment, second longest employer in Mercy Hospital history. That's amazing. My brother wanted to be an attorney his whole life. By the time he... He, he, he graduated from law school and he, and, he, and he passed the bar. He was literally blinded in student debt. He had no idea what his next move was going to be or how he was going to get himself out of the position that he had created for himself. Today, currently resides as an attorney in the White House practicing pensions and benefits. My father never held a job a day in his life. He taught me one thing in life, if and when I go to prison, how to conduct myself. Unfortunately, Sir came to his disease of addiction and died as a direct result of crack cocaine. Me, on the other hand, I got my first skateboard at the age of seven. And that night when my mother put me to bed, she said, Brandon, what do you want me to do with the skateboard? I said, I want it in bed with me. She said, why? And I said, because if I die... I want it to come with me. <laughs> the moment that board touched my hand, I knew I was going to be a professional skateboarder. The moment that board touched my hand, it was like the equivalent uh, of, of God coming down and personally handing me the Holy Grail. Right? I, I knew that I was going to be a professional skateboarder. There was no reason for a plan B, a trait, an option, I was going to be a professional skateboarder. I ate it. I breathed it. I slept it. I dreamt it. At the age of 15, I was designing my pro model for Pal Peralta. I was touring the world with Tony Hawk, and they would send a private tutor that flew with me. At the age of 14, I was the first skateboarder ever in the world to be endorsed by Gatorade. They, they flew me to Chicago to the Quake Roads building where they made Gatorade at the time. They would put me on a treadmill. They put Michael Jordan on a treadmill directly next to me. They would give us... They would strap these EKGs to our chest and they, they would give us each Gatorade to, to see the effects that Gatorade had on different sports players. So you see, from a very young age, I, I, I'm already doing things that, again, some would equate to success or happiness, potentially even dream of doing. Right? My, my mother's a nuclear physicist. My, my brother's an attorney in the White House. I live with that after school special, that cautionary tale. My father was the man that I was never going to become. Uh, I actually excelled at everything I did in life to not become that man. Right? Because the things that he, he, you know, the things that he uh, allowed me, my mother, my brother, and my sister to endure were, were, were nothing that any human being should ever endure in a lifetime. And, uh, and I can't tell you about the first time that I picked up that first drink. I can't tell you about the first time that I, I smoked that first joint. I swallowed that first pill. I shot that first bag. I sniffed that first line. I can't tell you about it. Um, because from a very young age, I had goals, I had dreams, I had ambitions. I was never going to be what my father become, would have become. Uh, I actually excelled at everything that I did to, to ensure that I would never be my father. Um, 
I can't tell you about the first time I picked that thing up, but what I can tell you about was the first time that that, that thing, meaning a drink or a drug, was was threatened. And you're going to hear in my story that that anything, and I mean anything, that stands between me and that next bag, bottle, or pill must and will go. And it was never personal. It was always just business, right? Um, and what that looked like is I was on a tour um, with a bunch of skateboarders, and 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 one skater in particular, a fellow by the name of Mike Vallali, was on the tour with us, and and. He called me with some drugs and he said, Brandon, get rid of the drugs or, or get off the tour. So as any good alcoholic does, I take the drugs, I throw the drugs down the sewer. We finish this demo. We go back to the hotel. I meet a gentleman at the hotel. He drives me back to the demo where I go to the sewer. I fish the drugs out of the sewer. Long story short, I get caught with the drugs and I get kicked off the tour. Now... My mind, see, I, I, I've now, you know, I, I now possess this alcoholic-ridden brain that lies to me in my own voice, and it makes me believe the unbelievable. And what that brain is telling me at this point in time is that the skateboarding world needs me, it cannot go on without me, and I am an asset. And in reality, the skateboarding world does not need me. It goes on quite fine without me, and I'm a liability. Unfortunately, I'm the last person to understand and or accept that. Why? Because I possess that job that consists of knowing everything. All right? So, so now I'm home. Tours are no longer being booked. Flights are no longer being scheduled. Video parts are no longer being produced. Why? Because those words would consist of me having conversations that consist of the words honest, reliable, and dependable. And at this point, I really shy away from those conversations because those words will not help me get one more drink or drug. They actually do the exact opposite for me. So I tend to shy away from those conversations that consist of those words. Um, and now a few weeks into being home after being kicked off this tour, I get a phone call from, from my mentor, a fellow by the name of Tony Hawk. And he said, Brandon, we have one of two options we could do with you. We can put you into treatment. You can save your life. You can continue to be a skateboarder for Pal Peralta or you could quit the team, right? So, so, so from the age of seven, when my mother gave me that first skateboard and I insisted upon sleeping with it that night because if I died, I wanted to go with me, uh, ate it, breathed it, slept it, dreamt it, 15 designing my pro model, touring the world with Tony Hawk. I had achieved, I had achieved my lifelong goal. Right. If I were to die at that age, I'd have been a happy man, achieving everything that I ever wanted in this earth. Uh, and, and now, for the first time in my life, uh, I'm being, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being confronted with an ultimatum: go to treatment, save your life, continue to skate for pal, or you quit the team. From seven to fifteen, I ate, I breathed, I slept, it, I dreamt it. Now I'm being uh, confronted with this ultimatum, and I don't have a breath of fresh air in my lungs when I say I quit. How did I get there? How, how did I get there? I had the goals. I had the dreams. I had the ambitions, the aspirations. Came from better, knew better, lived with that after school special, that cautionary tale of what drugs and alcohol would simply do to a person. I was not going to become my father. I will actually excel at everything that I do to prove the point that I will not be that man. In the blink of an eye, I, I willingly became a participant in my own demise. I didn't see then what I understand now 
that the disease of addiction already had its claws in me. I, I, I was incapable of seeing the reality uh, of my situation at that time, right? Um, now, if you don't mind me asking, at that time, from the outside, obviously you had your mom and your brother and your sister. What were they saying to you while all this was going on? Nothing, absolutely nothing, because skateboarding is not really a team sport, right? Like I, I didn't have to go meet the whole team and talk to the coach um, and have these practices, right? Skateboarding is more of an independent kind of sport. Uh, my team captain, which would be my coach, uh, lived in Santa Barbara, California, and I would call him and tell him the new tricks that I had learned, ordered new uh, product, boards, wheels, trucks, and, and send new clips that I had filmed, right? So that was me checking in. That was, any, that was the most form of accountability that I had at that very young age. My mother was, you know, a single mother, uh, you know, raising her home, me, my brother, my sister. My father was running rampant. Um, he was around just enough to let me know that he wasn't around. Um, and when we knew that he was coming home, we shook like a leaf, man, because we never knew who was going to walk in that door and what we were going to get or what we would be encountered with. Um, so my mother was, you know, busting her ass to, to, to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. My brother and sister were doing their thing. And I was raised by a skateboard and I was raised in the community of other skaters. So I didn't have to like come in when the streetlights were on. And, and after all, I was already so successful at such a young age that people thought that there was like a method to my madness, that I, I seemed to have an understanding and, and grasp on what I was doing and the direction I was heading in. So, so no one was ever questioning me um, because they didn't have a reason to. Gotcha. So now that the tour is canceled, I'm, I'm now living at home with my mother and my girlfriend, right? Around three months of, of this, they kind of see the reality for what it is because I'm in front of their face. I'm no longer, I, 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 my interests have changed. I'm not out skating all day. I'm not doing the things that I once did. They can see a, a, my pattern has changed. So my mother and my girlfriend come to me one day and they said, Brandon, we have a great idea for you. And I said, what's that? And they said, we want you to go to treatment. Now I had just turned down this opportunity from from at that time, the, the God of my understanding, Mr. Tony Hawk, he was the best that ever did anything. And, and uh, he was my biggest idol. I was his biggest idol, you know? So at the time, you know, I turned down that proposition from that man. So now my mother and my girlfriend come in with the very same proposition. And I think about it for a second. And I said, you know what? That's a phenomenal idea. A, I have the time. B, I'm going to report to said treatment center. And I'm going to report back to you too, meaning my mother and my girlfriend, why I don't belong there, right? This is all just an overreaction at best. You've simply caught me at a bad time on a bad day in a bad way, right? That, that's, that's what my disease-riddled brain is telling me in my own voice. So now I'm going to report to this institution to, to merely collect enough data to report back to you too why I don't fucking belong with those people. No way. No, no way. So at the age of 17, my mother and my girlfriend take me and they drop me off at my first treatment center in, in, in the heart of Baltimore City. It's Wednesday night, like at 10.30 p.m. They drop me off. 
they I get there and they take me into this cafeteria. And this cafeteria, there's these like bright interrogation style lights shining on me. I, I'm 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 detoxing from heroin. I'm like ill as a research monkey. Uh, this cafeteria is completely empty, and out of nowhere, this older black gentleman walks in. And he walks directly up to me, and he said, white boy, what are you doing here? I said, heroin. He said, how old are you? I said, 17. He said, do yourself a favor and don't turn 18 in a place like this. As quick as he came, he left. He nor I had any idea the significance of that conversation was ever going to have on my life. You know what I can tell you about that gentleman? I can tell you where the four teeth were placed in his mouth because at the time I had all mine. You know what I can tell you about that gentleman? Is that he was 70 to 75, I was 17. He was black, I was white. He smoked crack cocaine. My delusional alcoholic brain, the one that lies to me, my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable, tells me that I successfully do heroin. He's homeless. I live with my mother and my girlfriend. God bless that man. I'm so grateful he found the answer for which he's in search of. You know what I can't tell you about that place? I can't tell you my therapist's name. I can't tell you about the relapse prevention packet they're shoving down my throat. The healthier and unhealthy bounds are trying to instill me because if I can tell you about those things, that means that I can relate to being one of those people and I want no part. I told you I simply came to this institution to prove a point of why I don't belong. I'm comparing out at everything that I can find that does not, you know, intertwine with me. I successfully complete that 30-day treatment center. Upon completion, being released, I, I built up no defense against me and that first drinker drug. And he was right. He was right. I didn't turn 18 in a place like that. I turned 19, 20, 22, 23, 25, 27, 29, 32, 33, 34, and 35 in a jail or a treatment center. Wow. Every year, I'd sit on whatever bunk in whatever cell of whatever jail I was in or whatever bed of whatever treatment center I was in, and I would think back to that older gentleman and say, maybe if me, myself, Brandon Novak, would have listened to that man, with an open mind and an open heart, I would not continuously find myself in this situation year after year after year after year. Meaning that it was fully self-induced. I had now created and or painted this picture for which you see me in. In between all those years, all those birthdays, I'm in and out of treatment centers. I'm in and out of treatment centers. I would go into these treatment centers and I would loiter with the intent to recover, right? I, I, I'll get a sponsor because that's what the therapist suggests that I do. And after all, I want her to get the fuck off my back because like, uh, I'd like to get a few extra hours uh, on my weekend home visit. So I need to make her believe that I'm abiding. Um, you want me to get a home group? I, I can do that really simple. Uh, you, you want me to like get this network of people? I, I'm a people person, right? Uh, but then you say work the steps and I say, Jesus Christ, how many times are we going to overreact here? And then for the life of me, I can't understand why I'm, I'm standing back on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park selling my body 
for another bag of heroin. How did I get there? How did I get there? I had the goals. I had the dreams. I had the aspirations. My mother's a nuclear physicist. My brother's an attorney in the White House. My father dies a direct result of the disease of addiction. First skateboard endorsed by Gatorade, hanging out with Michael Jordan, touring the world with Tony Hawk, a private tutor that flies with. The flip side of that coin, the reality of what my life really looks like is I've I've now been in, in I've now been in eight inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. Now I trip and I fall into these movies called Jackass. These TV shows called Viva La Bam. Again, doing something in life that people would equate to success or happiness, some even dream of doing. But now, just like in the skateboarding world, in this jackass world, my, my, my flights are no longer being booked. Paychecks are now being diverted to my, my, my second ex-fiance. Because clearly, they like to get in between me and getting high, so that's not going to last. Because... The people at Paramount say, if we book him the flight, will he make the flight? Let's say we book him the flight and he catches the flight. What condition will he be in when he gets here? Fuck it. Let's say we book him the flight and he makes the flight. It's the same thing that's going to happen as last time. We have to kick the bathroom door down at Paramount Studios because he's dead on the ground with a needle in his arm. That's not a good look for the work world. But the delusional alcoholic brain from which I possess, the one that lies to me in my own voice, that makes me believe the unbelievable, tells me that the jackass world needs me. It cannot go on without me, and I am an asset. In reality, it does not need me. It goes on quite fine without me. I'm a liability. Unfortunately, the last person to understand that because I possess that job that consists of knowing everything. Now, now see, in between, you know, all these attempts at treatment and and doing these things that, that most would say are socially acceptable, I continue to go to these 12-step meetings. And at these 12-step meetings, they keep telling me that my life is unmanageable. And now I, sub I believe that my life is unmanageable. Define unmanageable for the audience. Like, what, do you, what do you mean by unmanageable? Unmanageable is that at this point in time, already I, I live to use and I used to live. I can't keep a needle out of my arm to save my life, right? The, the, the drugs are now dictate what I do, who I do it with, and when I do it. Um, my life literally revolves around how I'm going to get the next one. Got you. Okay. So, so I mean, after all, I've been in eight inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of patients in details. My mother has bought me a plot. Um, I've been medevac to two different hospitals in two different states from two different overdoses. Um, and now I continue to go to these meetings. They tell me that my life is unmanageable. I believe that my life is unmanageable, but I, I really believe somewhere along the line that I thought I heard someone say that social acceptability equals personal recovery, right? Because I hadn't yet began doing the internal work that was needed to get the external results that were desired, right? I hadn't started doing that yet. 
So I believed that everything was external, right? If the home was big enough, the woman was pretty enough, the car was new enough, and the account was high enough, then I got to be fucking doing great. I really believe that, right? So now I end up in these movies, Jackass, these TV shows called Viva La Bam, and let me back up and, 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 and try to allow the viewers to understand powerfulness addiction is yeah please do how powerful it is it's 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 the most powerful thing i've ever been confronted with and i've never seen anybody beat it right uh what i'm about to share with you is not debatable no needs to to question it you can look it up in any medical dictionary in the world if you've been diagnosed as an addict or an alcoholic all that simply means is you've been diagnosed with a disease that if left untreated equals death. It's a fatal disease. That's the fact of the matter. Now going in and I'm being a, you know, a resident of eight inpatient treatment centers and have lost count of outpatients and detoxes. Long ago, I've been diagnosed as an addict and an alcoholic, right? So there's no question in my mind at this point, if I am or am not one of those. But as far as I'm aware of, it's, it's the only fatal disease for which I possess that lies to me on a daily basis in my own voice, making me believe the unbelievable that I don't possess this disease. Follow me. Diagnosed with HIV, I'm rushing to the hospital to get medication. I don't want to die. Fatal disease. Diagnosed with cancer, I'm rushing to the hospital to get chemo. I don't want to die. Fatal disease. Diagnose me as an addict or an alcoholic. I need a glass of wine or a bag of heroin to figure out what the fuck's wrong with you for diagnosing me with said disease. It's just as fatal as the first two diseases. But left to my own devices, I'll believe that I do not have a disease. I will finish this interview with you. I will shut my computer down and I will go up the street and buy a whole bunch of heroin. And the scary thing is that I can make that make complete sense to me. And if you are asking yourself what your devices would be that would allow you to make such an insane decision as that. It's simple. Brandon sponsors Brandon. Brandon is Brandon's God and Brandon only, only, only attends Brandon's anonymous. Right? So now, that's the severity of the situation that I'm dealing with at this point, mm -hmm. right? I've been diagnosed with this disease that is absolutely 100% fatal. It lies to me in my own voice. It makes me believe that I don't have this disease. When confronted with being an addict or an alcoholic, I need to have a glass of wine or a bag of heroin to figure out what the fuck's wrong with you for thinking that I have this disease. I believe that social acceptability equals personal recovery, Right? First skateboard endorsed by Gatorade. Hanging out with Michael Jordan. Touring the world with Tony Hawk. In these movies called Jackass that break box office records. On these TV shows called Viva La Bam. But yet I possess this, this disease-ridden brain that, that lies to me in my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable. 
you people tell me that my life is unmanageable. I believe that my life is unmanageable, but but what I forgot to share with you is now being in those movies, Jackass, I, I'm now doing appearances at nightclubs. And at these nightclubs, they say, okay, Mr. Novak, what would you like in your green room on your rider? I'd say some heroin, some cocaine, some Xanax, and some wine. They'd say, no problem. They would give me those substances. I would take pictures. I would sign autographs. At the end of the night, I get a check for $10,000. Wow. So now, right, it's literally become my job to get high. And I believe, after all, social acceptability equals personal recovery. You tell me that my life is unmanageable. I believe that my life is unmanageable, but take a look at my bank account. That seems pretty fucking manageable. Paired with the fact that I have this, delu this delusional alcoholic brain that lies to me in my own voice that tells me I don't have this disease. Paired with the fact that I'm defiant by nature, I hate authority, and I will never conform unless it becomes my idea. Paired with the fact that I possess this job that consists of knowing everything. Paired with the fact that I walked into that first treatment center completely comparing out, thinking that this was over just an overreaction at best. You simply caught me at a bad time on a bad way in a bad day. Paired with the fact that now being in these movies, Jackass, the reality is the more outlandish my behaviors are, the more outrageous my antics become, the higher in demand I am, which means the more money that I make. So at this point, I don't know how from cold, right from left, up from down. But now, just like in that jack in the skateboarding world and in this jackass world, flights are no longer being booked. Paychecks are now being diverted. Videos aren't set to be filmed. So now I come up with a foolproof plan of how I'm going to beat my disease of addiction, right? Because the reality is. Despite doing some things in life that people would equate to success or happiness, some even dream of doing, the reality of what my life really looks like is I've now been in 10 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. People have taken life insurance policies out on me. Soon, I'm about to wake up from being on life support for seven days. My mother's already sold three homes to financially pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. But I got a plan, and the plan does not consist of going back to another treatment center. Because I'm so internally unique. Yes, I see that it works for the rest of that world, but it can't work for me. Right? They haven't seen what I've seen. They haven't experienced what I've experienced. They haven't felt what I've felt. They haven't walked in my shoes. See, that's all the, the, the things that, that, that my delusional alcoholic brain is telling me. Right? Yeah, and then I find it interesting, too, that you mentioned this. The exact behaviors that are destroying you are what people are absolutely paying you for and wanting more of. So you're publicly getting demand to feed the evil side. Absolutely. Where you know that good side is being destroyed. And it's like you're selling what the people want to make money, but yet it's killing you and your family on the inside. So it's a wow. crazy dynamic. So you have that dynamic, but then pair that with this delusional alcoholic brain that I possess that lies to me in my own voice. It makes me believe the unbelievable. Yep. Pair with the fact that I have this disease that tells me I don't have a disease. Pair with the fact that, that the, the, the more outrageous my behaviors are, the more outlandish my antics to become, the higher in demand I am, the better my ratings are, the more money that I make.
Yeah. Pair with the fact that I, I, I get paid to do appearances in bars that, 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 that literally supply what I'm demanding, which is the very same thing that's killing me. <laughs> yeah, and just in case the listeners, we jumped into this, but in case the listeners don't know, Brandon's background with the skateboarding, that's pretty self-explanatory, but the Jackass series and the Viva La Bam, I don't want to, I want to try to paint a picture for someone if you're not familiar with it. It's basically guys being crazy, doing stunts, doing things that they physically, you guys damage yourselves in a lot of ways. And in some ways it's like, it's fun to watch, but um, I can't imagine actually doing that and then going home and have to nurse some of those injuries. I mean, how would you explain the jackass and the Viva La Bam and what you were doing? Because I know some of the episodes you're actually performing crimes on camera. And I always wondered, how do you not get arrested for that? Or do you get arrested afterwards? Like the whole world you were in was so crazy. Well, the, the, it's, it's, it's the perfect recipe for disaster, more so if you're an addict or an alcoholic, such as myself, right? Because prior to ending up in those movies, after giving my skateboarding career away to a bag of heroin, so in between that failed attempt of success and ending up in these movies, I was a homeless heroin addict right in the streets of Baltimore City right? Doing whatever it took to get another bag, literally. Um, so anything that I was doing then paled in comparison to crazy when I ended up on Jackass. So like most of the stunts that nobody wanted a part of, I'm like, fuck yeah, sign me up. <laughs> I just came from the world of letting a man blow me to get another bag of heroin. So like the reality is now I do this on the big screen. I get a really big paycheck. I become quote unquote, uh, famous like it's a wall and if i get hurt in doing this stunt guess what <laughs> i'm rushed to the hospital prescribed a mountain of narcotics oh, allow me to have a justifiable high because at this point that i'm in these movies they will not allow me to do heroin or pills right mm -hmm. like that's not going to happen uh, cocaine and drinking was okay because it was more socially acceptable and they just did not understand the disease of addiction. So I get it. But like I break a bone, I'm rushed to the hospital. They load me up on uh, narcotics. That's a free justifiable high, which is yeah. what I really want to do anyways. But I can't because if I do that, then they're not going to allow me to be part of this. And, and I don't want to like ruin this. Now, if you don't mind me asking, and again, you don't have to answer any question, but when you were going, you went from pro skateboarding to in and out of rehab, going back and forth. How did you get hooked up with the jackass guys in the Viva La Bam? Were they all part yeah, of your group? The, the guy, well, most of them are skaters for the most part. Skateboarding is kind of the glue that holds all that together. Gotcha. Uh, but, but Bam Margera, who is uh, in the movies and, and, and is also a professional skateboarder, he was my best friend, uh, still is to date. And, and I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, give respects to him wholeheartedly for, and I credit him to being the guy that was got, that got me out of Baltimore city and, and gave me these opportunities that allowed me to like grow and, and prosper. And, you know, he attempted to, to help get me sober many a times. So with him, you know, being the star of Jackass and, and having his own TV show, Viva La Bam, he was like, look, if you want to get off heroin and you can move to my house in Westchester, Pennsylvania, you could be on my TV show. 
you know, you, but you can't do, you know, you can't do heroin or pills. Those, so those were kind of the, the rules that. Um, okay. So that, that was a connection and in, in the link. Yeah. Um, if you mind, let me ask you one more question too. You mentioned this, you alluded to it. You had a lot of pain in your childhood and I don't, you're not making excuses at all. You're not making it sound like you're putting blame, but we have, we're born, you know, people always say, um, our leaders born or made and they'll say, you know, we have skills and gifts from God and everybody will take credit for the skills and the gifts, but we're also born with weaknesses, I believe. And so I do believe there's a part of us that we all have areas of weakness that we're, you know, prone to. So for you, alcoholism and drug use would be a huge area of weakness. But what part do you think the childhood and the dynamic with your father and that kind of pain played into you not only becoming an addict, but not being able to escape for so many years? Well, and this is just my opinion. So take it as that. But I I wholeheartedly 100% believe I was genetically predisposed, right? Because my brother and my sister are are from a different man have no issues with drugs and alcohol. My mother has no issue with drugs and alcohol. I was the only son by my father. He was an addict. His father was an addict. Uh, so I, I believe that I was genetically predisposed 100% hands down. Um, and then the, you know, I don't want to say being a victim is up, of, of his upbringing, but, but being a, uh, you know, being a child that, that, whose who's upbringing was provided by an addict and an alcoholic who did a lot of, uh, you know, unsafe things and, and, and placed not only himself, but his family in a lot of unsafe uh, uh, positions. You can't really expect, you know, tons of good to come from that immediately. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't, it's it's unrealistic to believe that, like, you know, if I'm raised by a father who who never held a job a day in his life, spent the majority of his time in in and out of prison, ran with the Hell's Angels, it's it's pretty unlikely that I'm going to come out of that upbringing as a, a straight A uh, student who just received a full scholarship to Yale. You know, it's just kind of doesn't really make sense. Yeah, and statistics are against you, but for the listener out there. Many of us have bad backgrounds. Many of us have same issues you have. Mm-hmm. Would you agree or disagree that we don't have to believe the lie that history dictates our future? Oh, absolutely. And I think the further along that I get with my story, the end kind of ties up that question. Then I'm going to shut up and keep going, brother. <laughs> so, so I come up with a foolproof plan of how I'm going to beat my disease of addiction, right? Because what my disease of addiction is telling me is that I am so internally unique. Yes, I see that it works for all these other people that are in my treatment centers that I attend in hopes to get sober, but it can't work for me, right? Because like they didn't watch their father cut their mother's throat at the age of eight, right? Um, at the age of seven, their father didn't take them to strip joints. And, and, and when, when he would go in the back to conduct business, they, they would sit me at the stool uh, as the pretty dancing girls would pour shots of ginger ale or Coca-Cola into the shot glasses. I would do the shots. Uh, the, the girls would applaud and my father would give me that look of approval, right? Those people in those treatment centers, 
they didn't get paid to get high like I got paid to get high from doing those appearances and rewarded with the same thing that was ultimately my demise. Like they, they, they didn't end up in movies that broke these box office records. So like, of course it works for them, but it, I'm so internally unique that it could never work for me is what I really believed. Right. And, and my information is coming from the thing that's the biggest problem in my life. The thing that resides my, in between my two ears. Right. My, because my thinking, my attitude, my behavior is the problem. The drugs and the alcohol, knowing what I know now after doing this internal work, are simply the solution to what my problem was. So the drugs and alcohol were the exact opposite of my problem. They were the solution to what my real problem was, which was me, my thinking, my attitude, my behavior. And after all, that's all that I can control anyways. But I did not know that at the time. So I'm not going to go to another treatment center because I've been to 10 already. What They're not going to tell me anything new that I haven't heard or learned before. So I come up with a foolproof plan of how I'm going to beat my disease of addiction. And I mean it. I mean it. I, strap me to a polygraph. I, I would have every police officer in the world pat me on the back saying, boy, we wish everyone was as honest as you are. If that were the case, the world would be a safer place to live in. Right? That's how much I believe this plan that I'm about to embark on. I would literally bet my mother's life on it. If I'm lying, may she drop dead where she stands. That's how much I've bought in to this plan that I'm about to embark on, all in hopes to beat my disease of addiction. Because I've been to 10 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. It just doesn't work. So this is going to – I'm going to move to Helsinki, Finland, right? It's, it's literally across the world. They don't even speak my language. I'm going to go there. I'm going to regroup. I'm going to rebrand. I'm going to reassess. I'm going to reevaluate. I'm going to fucking redo life because I do not like the results that I'm receiving from my life here in Westchester, Pennsylvania or Baltimore, Maryland. So remember from a young age, I really believe that social acceptability equal personal recovery. After all, I was raised with my mother always telling me, show me who you walk with. I'll tell you who you are. So there's a, there's a connection there between those two parallels that I live my life from. Show me who you walk with. I'll tell you who you are. Transcends into social acceptability, equal and personal recovery, meaning that everything is from the external. How you view me, how you see me has to equate to how I'm doing. Right? So I jump on a plane. I fly to Helsinki, Finland. From the airport, I go directly to like the, the Ritz-Carlton versions of, of hotels in Helsinki. It's this very nice five-star hotel. Mind you, social acceptability was personal recovery. Show you who I walk with. Tell you who I, how I, you know, show me who you walk with. I'll tell you, tell me who I am, right? So I go to this Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Uh, I go right directly to the hotel. I get in the hotel. I walk directly to the lobby bar. In route to the lobby bar, I pass all these, these, these businessmen in these expensive suits having these meetings in different languages. And I walk directly to the lobby bar and I order a glass of wine, followed by another glass. There's four glasses to a bottle. I've now graduated to the bottle. While sitting at the bar drinking my bottle of wine, I meet a woman at the bar. She slides me a phone number. I now have a, a direct connection to heroin, which is being delivered to me at the hotel. I'm in the bathroom doing the very same thing that I swore that I was never going to do again. I had just escaped Baltimore and Westchester, Pennsylvania to come here 
solely to change my life in hopes to put that thing to rest once and for all. And I'm in my bathroom. I'm, I'm in the bathroom. I'm doing what I do. And I stop and I call one of those sponsors that I've acquired uh, along the way at one of my many, many attempts of sobriety. And I called my sponsor, Lex, and I said, Lex, how did I end up here? I was not supposed to do what I'm doing here. I was not supposed to be doing what I was doing in Westchester, Pennsylvania, or, or Baltimore, Maryland when I got here. How did I get here? And he said, well, if you have a second, I'd like to share with you something. But after all, I know you're a very busy man with a really full itinerary and a really busy schedule. And after all, these international calls are quite pricey. What, Lex? He said, I guess you skimmed over the part where we talked about geographical change does not equal recovery. You can't shake your shadow. You take you with you everywhere you go. I put you in Finland, you shoot dope. I put you in Africa, you shoot dope. I put you in Philadelphia, you shoot dope. It, 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 it's sunny outside, you get drunk. It, 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 it snows outside, you get drunk. They, they talk about triggers. My triggers are when my eyelids open. I can justify why any time, place, feeling, or sensation makes sense to get high over. And he says, if you have another second, I'd like to share with you something else. But after all, I know you're a very busy man with a really full schedule. And, and these international calls can get quite pricey. And I said, what, Lex? He said, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to take that needle out of your arm. I want you to stare directly into the mirror that you're standing in front of, and I want you to tell me what you see. He said, better yet, don't say a fucking word. I'm going to tell you what you're looking at. You're staring directly into the eyes of your problem. You are your problem. The heroin in your hand is nothing but the solution to your problem. That was not the answer I was in search of. That was not what I was hoping he would share with me. He said, let me tell you something. The drugs and the alcohol are not your problem. They are not your problem. They're the exact opposite of your problem. The drugs and the alcohol are simply a solution to your problem, which is you. For the first time in your life, your solution's being threatened, right? I told you anything that stands between me and that next bag, bottle, or pill must and will go. For the first time in your life, you're, you, you've, you've escaped to Helsinki, Finland, in hopes to escape your solution, which is your drug and your alcohol addiction. And for the first time in your life, it's being threatened. You don't have it to rely upon. Now you're like a stranger in your own skin trying to figure out who the fuck let you in and why. And wow, did that ever hit me. A lot of things became really clear with when he shared that with me, you know, because they, as I've learned throughout my many attempts at getting sober and my experience, meaning the writing on the wall always dictated that I, I could always get sober. I could just never stay sober, right? Um, I can sit that thing down like when, when the job's getting ready to fire me, the woman's getting ready to leave me, the home's getting ready to evict me, the parole officer's getting ready to violate me, the judge's getting ready to sentence me. When my back's against the wall, I can always sit that down, meaning the drink or the drug. I can go seven days, detox myself just long enough to produce a clean urine, 
to to get her belief, her love back, to make the employer think that I, I, I'm a I'm, I'm a reliable employee, uh, to build people's hopes up. I can do that. I'm really good at doing that. I can always get sober, but the problem is I can never stay sober because I'm so uncomfortable with my own skin at that point without having my solution to rely upon. Uh, I, I, I'm a stranger in my own skin, and I don't, I don't know who let me in or why. I, I don't know what I like. I don't know what I think. I don't know how I feel. Uh, please don't ask me any of those questions because what if I say something that you think is weird or different and you share that with me? I, I get high over things like that. So with that being said, when he shared that with me, I, I said, what do you mean they're not my problem? I've given it homes. I've given it women. I've given it careers. I've given it family members. I've given it my life. I've overdosed more than I can count. I've given it my sexuality. When it asks, I give because I don't have the privilege to not give. And again, in my story, you're going to hear that I'm very upfront, I'm very descriptive, and I'm very graphic. Because the reality is I keep my past married to my present. Because the moment that I forget where I've come from, I will absolutely return. So when he shared with me that that was not my problem, but it was the solution to my problem, it was like a shotgun blast to the face. Because I really believed in my heart of hearts, if I, if, I, if I just got the right job, if I just got the right woman, if I just got the right, the, the right outlook on life, the right break, the right chance, things will be better. So with that being said, I jump on a plane and I return back to Westchester, Pennsylvania. My mother's a nuclear physicist. My brother's an attorney in the White House. My father died as a direct result of the disease of addiction. I live with that after school special. I live with that cautionary tale of the man that I was never, ever, ever going to become. As a matter of fact, I excelled in everything that I did in my life to prove a point that I would never be that man. First skateboard endorsed by Gatorade. Hanging out with Michael Jordan. Touring the world with Tony Hawk. Designing my pro model at the age of 15. A little bit further down the road, I end up in those movies, Jackass, and those TV shows called Viva La Bam. I'm doing some things in life that people equate to success or happiness that some might even dream of doing. The reality of my life, what it really looks like on the flip side of that coin, is I've now been in 11 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. People have taken life insurance policies out on me. I'm about to wake up on life support for seven days. My mother has sold three homes to financially pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. She has nothing left to give. So, so one day she went to church across the street from her house and Father Mike saw her sitting in the pew crying uncontrollably. Father Mike looked at my mother, Miss Pat, and said, Miss Pat, what's wrong? Miss Pat, my mother said, Father Mike, it's Brandon. He's never been worse. There's nothing left I can do or give to help my child. So I've simply went to God with one prayer. And with that, Father Mike's eyes lit up. He said, oh, yeah, Miss Pat, what's that? Miss Pat, my mother said, Father Mike, it's real simple. The prayer consists of God, please cure him. God, please kill him. Or God, please kill me because I can't take it anymore. <laughs> 
And Father Mike, for the first time in his life, looked at my mother and said, how dare you go to God like that with a plan for your son? God has a plan for your son. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And Brandon doesn't know what it is. What I've learned in my journey of sobriety is that my life is lived forward and learned backwards. And now, only through the grace of God, I've been able to remain sober long enough where I can recognize the synchronicity in life's events that have led me to the here and now prove to me that the God of my understanding was the only person that could do for me what I could not do for myself, which is lift me of the obsession or rid me of the desire to want to drink or drug. Because as I share with you, I had changed women, homes, careers, states, worlds. I moved to London, to Finland, to Paris, all in hopes to escape my disease. Not, until I had that spiritual experience, that was the only thing that was able to lift me of the obsession. But when Father Mike looked at my mother and said, how dare you go to God like that with a plan for your son? God has a plan for your son. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And Brandon doesn't know what it is. And looking back, thank God I didn't know what it was because I would have fucked it up. I would have gotten away with it. Right. Again, a guy who's done some things in life to equate to success or having some of a dream of doing the reality of what my life really looks like is I, I, I live in an abandoned house on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park in Baltimore City. My worldly possessions, everything that I own in this world consists of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant that fits into a bag that doubles my pillow and a needle and a spoon. I stand on the corner and I prostitute my body for forty dollars all day to buy another bag of heroin. How did I get here? I had goals, I had dreams, I had aspirations. Looking back, it's real simple to see how I got here. I got here because I sat there with a closed mind and a closed heart. I got here because I sat there and I compared out. I got here because I sat there and I possessed that job that consisted of knowing everything. So now I gotta come up with another plan. I'm no fool by any means. I come from better. I know better. I'm an outside-of-the-box kind of thinker. I'm the kind of guy that if I believe it, I can see it. I don't need to see anything to believe it, right? I told you I've been in 12 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. People take life insurance policies out on me. I'm a homeless heroin addict who, who lives to use and use to live. I'm the kind of alcoholic that wants to kill himself on a daily basis, but I don't want to hurt myself in the process. I'm horrible at suicide because I keep waking up. I'm in a position in life where I'm so low the curb looks like a skyscraper, and I got to figure out a way up and out of my position. I'm no fool by any means. I do not have a high school diploma. I got my GED in prison. But I decide I'm going to write a book. I write my whole book pen and paper. I write a book in 12 chapters. I give it to my co-author, who's a very smart man with letters and letters in front and behind his name. He turns 12 chapters into 23 chapters. I've now written an autobiography addiction memoir. We shop. We get a literary agent who shops that memoir around. The book gets bought by, by Citadel Press, Kensington Publishers. The book does really, really well.
I'm now an author. I'm a published author. I'm a published author who's written an autobiography addiction memoir. The book becomes a New York Times top 10 seller. I'm now receiving hundreds of thousands of pieces of mail from all over the world in all these different languages of people who have read my book that would write to me and say, I, I read your book. I didn't want my story to get as bad as yours. I have 30 days. Mothers or fathers writing to me saying, I read your book. I understand why my daughter or son does what they do. It's not that I'm a bad mother. It's that they suffer with a disease of addiction. My delusional alcoholic brain just told me I wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, for anybody out there who has no idea what I'm talking about, um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is like our, our, our guide to life. It's like the Bible to a, a Christian, literally. But what I failed to share with you is that I wrote this book while, while, while sniffing copious amounts of cocaine and drinking endless amounts of wine. The day that my book's about to be released, it's in Times Square in New York City. My literary agent's there, my publisher's there, my manager's there. All these well-to-do people in the scholarly world are there for the release of my, my new book, this autobiography addiction memoir that I had just written that, that was becoming wildly successful. I didn't have any money that day to, to get high. And my people would not allow me to have any money to go get high because what I didn't understand then that I clearly see now is that it would not be a good look me sitting at the Barnes and Nobles in Times Square in New York City as the launch of my new addiction memoir uh, takes place and I'm doing these autograph signings while nodding out on heroin. But see, the reality is disease, the disease from which I possess, the one that brought me through these doors begging for one more chance of sobriety, that disease that disease that when it calls, I answer by any and all means necessary, right? And, and, and I don't have the privilege to say, yeah, but I got to work right now. I'll get back to you in two hours. No, <laughs> the disease from which I possess, when it says, I say, yes, sir, how high, when, and where. So now I'm confronted with an ultimatum of like, don't have my heroin I can't get any money to secure the heroin that I need to not become sick so I can sit through my job which is doing an autograph signing it and my own autobiography addiction memoir releasing it in New York City at Times Square my time to shine right like my my rebirth if you will this is going to be the thing that's going to help me how could it not right everything is external and all of a sudden they wheel my books in on this dolly in these big boxes, and 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 I have another I have another buddy of mine from Baltimore who's with me, and he doesn't feel good either that day, as well. And all of a sudden, they wheel my books in on this dolly in these big boxes, and and I take a look at my buddy, and we don't say a word, but we have a complete conversation that language of the heart, untreated, if you will. I stand up, he stands up in uniform position, 
and, and we go over, I grab two boxes of my own books. He grabs two boxes of my own books. Now I've just stolen four boxes of my own autobiography, addiction, memoir books from my own book release party in New York city to run to Penn station to jump on the next train back to Baltimore to two different skate shops where I autograph and I sell these books to secure more money to go buy more heroin. How the fuck did I get there? How? I had goals. I had dreams. I had aspirations. My mother was a nuclear physicist. My brother was an attorney in the White House. I lived with the cautionary tale, the man that I would never become. I saw what addiction did to a human being firsthand. I experienced the wrath of, of, of addiction firsthand. Excelled at everything that I did to prove a point that I would never become that man, that I was always going to be better than he was. First skateboard endorsed by Gatorade, hanging out with Michael Jordan, touring the world with Tony Hawk, private tutor that flies with, designing my pro model for Pal Peralta. In these movies, they break box office records. On these TV shows that do extremely well. Now, New York Times top 10 selling author who's written an autobiography addiction memoir. Did a lot of things in life that people would equate to success or happiness or somebody even dream of doing. But the reality of what my life really looks like is I've just... I've just been in 12 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. People have taken life insurance policies out on me. I just woke up from being on life support for seven days. I've been medevac to four different hospitals in four different states from four different overdoses. My mother has sold three homes to pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. Nothing left to give. She's went to God with one prayer. God, please cure him or kill him. I can't take it anymore. I reside on the street corner of Eastern Avenue in Patterson Park, selling my body for $40 to anybody who's interested. Everything that I own consists of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant. How did I get here? How? So I finished doing what I'm doing in Baltimore, sell the books, shoot the dope. I jump back on a train, go back to Westchester, and I go to my second ex-fiance's home. And when I get to our house at the time, I put my key in the lock. And a common theme in my story is that locks stop working. The lock stops working. I do the next best thing. I kick the door in. When I kick the door in, the home is completely empty. She had taken uh, our furniture, our artwork my clothing, her clothing, our cats, you name it, it was gone. And I found myself in a fetal position coming to the realization that, that this home is now a spitting image of what I have become. This big empty shell of a house now consoles this big empty shell of a man lying on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. And the only thing I can think of, the only thing that crosses my mind is that gentleman from that first treatment center that said, do yourself a favor and don't turn 18 in a place like this. And at that moment, my phone goes off and it's my mother. My mother is the woman that has never said no to me. She's loved me when I didn't love myself. She's prayed for me when I didn't pray for myself. She's cared for me when I didn't care for myself. She shows up for me when I don't show up for myself. She called me in, in a, around five years ago in Baltimore City. An incident had occurred where, where the police killed a young black man by the name of Freddie Gray. 
And when that incident occurred in Baltimore City, it had turned, it had turned the city into the movie The Purge. They were robbing, they were looting, they were shooting, they were stealing. There was a nine o'clock curfew. No one was to be on the streets. They had brought, they had brought the National Guard in with their machine guns and tanks, and they stood on every other corner. And my mother lives around 12 blocks from where that incident occurred. And when she called me, she said, Brandon, can you come make sure I'm safe? I'm terrified. <laughs> my intentions were to make sure that woman was as safe as humanly possibly could be. My intentions were to make sure that woman who's never let me down got what she asked for. <laughs> my actions look like this. I jumped on the train. I ran right back to Baltimore. I got to her house. Walked upstairs, physically removed that woman from her bedroom. I had now commandeered her bedroom. I left that bedroom once a day. She now resides and sleeping on the sofa in her living room because she's in fear that like in between me chain smoking, I'm going to fall asleep and catch the house on fire. And her next best thought is if she sleeps on the sofa next to the front door and I catch her house on fire, she could probably make it out alive. I'm a 35-year-old homeless heroin addict who resides in his mother's bedroom. I leave that room once a day. My worldly possessions consist of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant. Fits into that bag that doubles as a pillow. One day I go out to get my heroin and I come back and my 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 sister and my mother are at the home and, and, and when I go to put the key in her lock, it no longer works. Now I love my mother. I would never kick her door in. <laughs> so I politely knock, right? See how disconnected from reality I have become? The abnormal has become the normal. I'm living on this animalistic level where I simply use to live and I live to use. So as I knock on the door, with that being said, my, my mother comes to the door again. She's crying uncontrollably. My sister hands me my worldly belongings, eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant in that bag that doubles my pillow. My needle and my spoon are in that bag, and my mother looks at me, and she said, Brandon, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I, I can no longer love you to death. You have to go. And with that, a police officer comes around the corner, and he serves me with a restraining order to leave her premises and never to return again. How? How did I end up here? My mother's a nuclear physicist. My brother's an attorney in the White House. My father died as a direct result of addiction. First skateboard indoors by Gatorade, hanging out with Michael Jordan, touring the world with Tony Hawk, been in these movies that break box office records. Now I'm a New York Times top 10 seller author who's written a book on addiction. Did some things in life that people would equate to success or happiness, something we dream of doing. The reality of what my life really looks like is I've, I've just woken up from being on life support for seven days. I'm about to enter into my 13th treatment center. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. My mother has bought me a plot. People have taken life insurance policies on them. I've been medevaced to four different hospitals in four different states with four different overdoses. I reside on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park, letting men blow me for another bag of heroin. I'm the kind of alcoholic today that wants to kill himself on a daily basis. I'm terrified to hurt myself in the process. I'm horrible at suicide because I keep waking up and I'm in a position in life where I'm so low the curb looks like a skyscraper.
I take my belongings, I take my restraining order, and I'm walking up the street. And I go back to the the abandoned house that I get high in and sometimes reside in. And, and, and when I get back there, I'm doing what I'm continuously doing, which is getting high, and my phone goes off, and it's this woman. And she said, I've read your book. It saved my life. And I could care less because I don't want mine right now. And she said, what do you say about an all-exclusive paid trip to Fort Lauderdale? I said, that's great. I need some heroin, some cocaine, some Xanax, and some wine. And she says, that's no problem. And, and, and I think to myself, that's a red flag. My book saved her life, but she's going to give me substances to kill mine. But I, again, like I said, I don't even care. I don't want my life, so who cares? I do a little bit more research. I, I, I see that she lives in a hotel that's not a good look either. I do a little bit more research, and I, I come to the understanding that she's a lady of the night or, or a dancer, which I have no problem with because I've seen you become both of those things for $10. Mind you, she's paying for airfare. She's paying for flights. She's paying for board and food. She's paying for the most important thing, drugs. And, and when I get there, she, she has two requirements that I must fulfill. When I, when I touch down in Fort Lauderdale, she wants to party, and she wants to make love, for lack of better words. And I don't know about anybody out there, but when I do heroin, I do neither. I sleep. So I know that I'm going to wear my welcome out really, really, really fast. Now, see, what I forgot to share with you is I'm, I'm sitting in an abandoned house in Baltimore City. It's a Thursday night. I'm due to report to my parole officer at 8 a.m. the following morning in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Right, I'm supposed to be in Pennsylvania. I'm not supposed to leave the state of Pennsylvania. I'm supposed to be clean and sober. I'm supposed to report to her off state AM, and I'm supposed to produce a clean urine. I'm in Baltimore City. I'm in a shooting gallery. I have a needle hanging out of my arm. I'm about to head to Fort Lauderdale to catch a red. I'm about to head to BWI Airport to catch a red eye flight to Fort Lauderdale. And if I piss into a cup, it will light up like a Christmas tree. But remember, I possess this delusional alcoholic brain that lies to my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable. And that brain tells me this. It's 11.30 Thursday night. She's bought me a flight to Fort Lauderdale. My brain tells me, don't worry. Get dressed accordingly. Make sure you look proper for Miss Ward. Um, because if you look disheveled, she'll probably violate you. Hurry up. Get dressed accordingly. Make it to the airport. Get to Fort Lauderdale, get what you need to get from her, and you'll make it back in plenty of time to produce a clean yarn for Miss Ward. And the reality is that is that is absolutely one hundred percent physically impossible to do, and not even reasonable. But your mind saying it is reasonable. It def it defies logic. Let's say I even I owned a private jet, I still could not make it back in time because I couldn't produce a clean yarn. Yeah. I if I piss into a cup, it would light up like a Christmas tree, right? Like that's the reality. But the disease from which I possess is don't worry, get dressed quickly because you're on a tight timeline. Hurry up and get to Port Lauderdale and you'll make it back by 8 a.m. to do. And I believe it so much so that I get dressed, right? I put these at once point in time, nice slacks on. If you overlook the cigarette hole burns, uh, I put this nice like button up shirt on and I put these at once point in time, nice Kenneth Coles on, uh, but I've lost a shoestring along the way. Right. I don't wear underwear at this point in my life because like I, I, I'm a homeless heroin addict. I don't find imaginary dressers and imaginary alleys to wash underwear to be responsible for. I live to use and I used to live. That, that's what my life looks like. 
So I get dressed accordingly, but before I get to the airport to board this flight, I got to stop over in West Baltimore to cop a few more things from the boys because I can't get sick on this flight, right? So when I go to score from the boys, the boys see fit to rob me as opposed to serve me. So when they rob me, they rip my front and my back pockets completely out. Now my front and my back are completely exposed. They rip my shirt open, and the only button that stays button is this very top button, and I got these, these shoes on with one shoestring. I'm now roaming the streets of West Baltimore looking like a gay East L.A. cholo gangbanger kind of guy. <laughs> that doesn't go as planned, so I got to hurry up and get to the airport because after all, I'm on a tight timeline. I don't want to not make my appointment for Miss Ward in the morning. So when I get to the airport, two things I've learned in my career is I will never win in an argument with a judge or a TSA airport security agent. What they say goes. So I step up to the counter at the airport in hopes to get my ticket. And the woman takes one look at me and she says, Mr. Novak, are you under the influence of anything? And I say, absolutely not. She says, I believe that you are and you will not fly for 72 hours. Not like the next flight out or tomorrow morning. This is three days for Christ's sake. Now, see, my delusional alcoholic mind just painted this whole picture. The woman knows who I am. Her son or daughter has an issue with addiction, and she's blaming her kid's disease on me. How dare her piss on my parade? The reality is I'm still dressed like the gay East L.A. Cholo gangbanger, and, and, and I would not be allowed to walk outside of my house, let alone board a flight anywhere in the world. Again, having remained sober long enough to look back and recognize the synchronicity in life's events that have led me to the here and now, I can see where God was interfering with my plans on a daily basis and this is the first one that became clearly evident now there's like a lot more but i can see this clearly i did not want to get on that plane my heart was beating 10 million miles an hour like i just shot 20 kilos of cocaine i did not want to get on the plane but the disease from which i possess said shut the fuck up and get on like you don't have to say so not go shut up God simply dressed up in the form of a TSA airport security agent and did for me what I could not do for myself that day. Because I did not want to go, I swear to God, but I didn't have the ability to say, no, I'm not going. Because my disease said, you're fucking going. And when she would not allow me access to that flight, it was like such a relief. Because I knew if I entered Fort Lauderdale, it was going to end really bad. I knew it. I felt it in my heart. It was going to end really bad. So I get out of line. I, I go to the corner and I call that same sponsor, the guy named Lex that I had called when I was in Finland in the bathroom shooting up. And I said, Lex, I'm stranded at BWI airport and I want to kill myself. He said, no, what you're going to do is you're going to get on the next train from Baltimore to Philadelphia. We're going to pick you up at the train station, 30th Street Station. We're going to come pick you up, right? I'm this alcoholic who's been deemed unhelpful and unfixable. And now you people are going to leave your cookouts. You're going to leave your families. You're going to leave your kids on Memorial Day 2015. You're going to leave your family, all your loved ones, to come pick this hopeless, helpless alcoholic up. You let me stay at your house. You take me to see Miss Ward the next morning. She grants me one more shot of mercy. She says, go back to treatment. I'm giving you one more chance. I go back to the same facility that I had attempted to get sober at four previous times. What that looked like the four previous times is I would sit in this chair with the same intake coordinator and she'd say, okay, Mr. Novak, your insurance covers 90 days. I would say, in theory, 90 days sounds great, but in reality, I'm more of like a 45-day kind of fellow. And she'd laugh at me each and every time and say, sweetheart, you have no idea. Anything or everything that you put in front of your recovery does not or will not matter because you will lose it. 
May 25th, 2015, something different happened today. I had finally been demoralized in just such a fashion from drugs and alcohol. I had been beaten into a state of reasonableness where I'm sitting in the same chair with the same intake coordinator in the same conversation that we've had four previous times. And it's that day when she says, Mr. Novak, your insurance covers 90 days. I, I can't even come back with a counter offer to her offer because if I say no, that entails an explanation. I've literally, for the first time in my life, thank God, have been beaten speechless by my disease of addiction. She says, sweetheart, you're in no condition to do your intake. Get up to detox. I'll see you in four days. I hobble up to detox. Again, I have the same outfit on, the clothes that are literally tied on by a shoestring with one shoestring in my shoes. Uh, my front and my back completely exposed. My shirt ripped open. Um, Everything I own in this bag consists of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant, a needle, a spoon, and a restraining order that my mother just had served on me. I get up to detox. There's this 19-year-old tech worker, and he said, Mr. Novak, you're back. And I said, aren't you a fucking genius? Right? Because nothing was happy to me. There was no form or reason to be excited about anything. My life was over as I knew it. He said, Mr. Novak, I regret to inform you that your clothes are not rehab-oriented. You need some underwear. You need some sweatpants. You need some slides. The fact of the matter was I never prayed for such simple articles of clothing in my life, and I remember them telling me in one of the many attempts of other treatment centers that I had entered that a grateful alcoholic will never use again. A grateful addict will never use again. The reality was I didn't have any underwear. I didn't have any sweatpants. What I had is what you saw on me. And he said, okay, come down to the basement to the donations room. We're going to see if we can find you some used underwear. My mother's a nuclear physicist. My brother's an attorney in the White House. My father died as a direct result of the disease of addiction. First skateboarder sponsored by Gatorade, hanging out with Michael Jordan, touring the world with Tony Hawk. In these movies, the break box office records, New York Times top 10 selling author that is, uh, has written a book on addiction. Uh, I've done some things in life that people equate to success or having something to dream of doing. The reality is I'm standing in my 13th inpatient treatment center. I've just woken up from being on life support for seven days. My mother has bought me a plot. People have taken life insurance policies out on me. I've lost count of how many detoxes and outpatients I've been into. Medevac, four different hospitals in four different states for four different overdoses. My mother has sold three homes to pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. Uh, and now stand in the basement of a Catholic Charities Rehab that cost me $3 to get into next to a 19-year-old kid as he thumbs through these boxes uh, looking for used underwear. And I'm praying to God that he finds them. How the fuck did I get there? <laughs> I got there because I sat there with a closed mind and a closed heart. I got there because I sat there and I compared out. I got here because I sat there and I possessed that job that consisted of knowing everything. Little did I know that in that basement, May 25th, 2015, as I stand directly beside a 19-year-old kid thumbing through these donation boxes looking for used underwear, that I found myself in a position in life that, that no word in the English dictionary could properly suffice to how bad or how bleak or how dark I felt or looked about my life. And little did I know that at that very moment, two things were about to take place that was forever going to change the terms of my contract of being a human being on this life. 
the very first thing that, that I had come to the realization of that had forever changed my life from that point forward is that for the prior 24 years upon entering this treatment center, I possessed that job that consisted of knowing everything. Therefore, when you suggested what I needed to do, I suggested why you needed to fuck off. I had this grand realization as I stood in this basement of this 13th treatment center next to a 19-year-old kid as he's thumbing through these boxes looking for used underwear and I'm praying to God that he finds them. I came to the realization on my own that you know what I do know is that I don't fucking know. And that my very best thinking places me in positions like this time after time after time after time. That's the first realization that has forever changed my life. That at the time I could not see, I, I thought that my life was over as I knew it. The second thing that I've come to understand, right, live my life is live forward and learn backwards. Now looking back at that moment, I was finally met face to face with the God of my understanding as a direct result of that gift of desperation. The pain had become so great that when the kid couldn't find the used underwear, he hands me a pair of size 40 women's sweatpants with no drawstring. He hands me a woman's tank top and a pair of size 13 Jesus sandals. I don't know how alert or attentive any of your followers are, but I'm not a woman and I do not wear a size 13. But as a direct <laughs> result, as a direct result of, of me coming to the realization that what I do know is that I don't know, and that I've now just been met face-to-face -face with the God of my understanding as a direct result of that gift of desperation, I've been overcome with a sense of willingness unlike anything that I have ever experienced on this earth. I take those women's clothing, the shoes that don't fit me. I go upstairs. I get a shower. I get that Baltimore City smell off me. Never so excited to put women's clothing on in my life. <laughs> I successfully complete that 90-day treatment center. In that 90-day treatment center, what they taught me is that if, if you change your perception, you can change your world. That your defects can become your assets with the slightest shift of pure perception. And that your history does not have to dictate your future, but it can most certainly guide and direct it. I successfully completed that 90-day treatment center. From there, I went to a sober living house where I resided for one year. And they also taught me in there is that my mentality will create the reality for which I live in. If you just change your perception, you can just change your world. I had been on parole and probation from 16 years old to 35, never a free day in between. It simply just transitioned and followed me from state to state, country to country. Two months shy of my two-year anniversary, I signed my release papers. I'm literally a free man that can go anywhere with anybody, anytime I like. I decided I wanted to get my two-year Alcoholics Anonymous coin abroad, so I flew to Paris to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and picked up my medallion. I no longer live in that self-induced prison that consists of a four-block radius that cost me $10 to get out of one bag of heroin at a time. My mother called me nine months into my process of sobriety, and she said, Brandon, I hate when you come to visit. I said, why? She said, because I get so sad when you leave. The very same mother that bought me a plot, the very same mother that took life insurance policies out of me, the very same mother that served me the restraining order, now tells me that she doesn't like when I come to visit because she gets so sad when I leave. That 
book that I had written upon them understanding and discovering that I had stolen my own books from my own book release party to take back to Baltimore to sell to buy more heroin. I had a three book deal. They had ripped that contract up on site. 14 months ago, my second book came out. This Monday, today, actually, my third, my second book just went into, my third book just went into print. Nine months ago, mm-hmm. I, uh, my, nine months ago, I released the first ever, uh, uh, addiction graphic novel. I have a documentary that's going to be going to the Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival. This is not me bragging or boasting by any means. It's me simply saying, if you want what I have, do what I do and you can get what I got. The solution's open and it's free for the taking. The question is, what are you willing to do to get yourself out of the position that you have created for yourself? All this change that you see me in, I'm not clever enough to paint myself in this picture for what you see me in. All I simply did was came to the realization that what I do know is that I don't know. And my very best thinking places me here. So I simply got out of my way, put my hand out, asked for help. And what I've learned is the longer I stay sober, the older that I get, the less that I know. For the first time, I walked into a treatment center with a lack of plan. That lack of plan has produced the best of plans because all it simply allowed me to do is get out of my own way. I am my biggest enemy. I'm going to close with this story. There's a father that works from home. The father's swamped in paperwork, and he's watching his son, and his son keeps banging his dad on the knee. Dad, take me out to play, take me out to play. The father's trying to think of a way to buy one or two days so he can complete this work that he's scheduled to have finished. He walks into his office and he sees a big picture of the puzzle of the world map and the father thinks to himself, I got it. He goes over to the desk in his office. He completely dismantles the picture of the puzzle of the world map. And he throws it on the floor. He says to the son, son, when you put the picture of the puzzle of the world map back together, I'll take you out to play. The father leaves that office surely thinking he bought one or two days. 20 minutes later, he comes back, bangs it down on the knee. Dad, I did it. Dad's thinking to himself, impossible. He walks back into that office as short as the day is long. The picture of the puzzle of the world maps put back together. In complete disbelief, he looks at his son. He said, son, how'd you do it? Son said, dad, it was real simple. On the back of the picture of the puzzle of the world map was a picture of a man. I put the man back together. The world fell back in place. Together we stand, divided I die. My name is Brandon. Thank you for listening. Man, thank thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for being here today and being so open with us. Um, for those of you listening, you got to hear Brandon's story, and I'm sure some of you know exactly what he has, um, you know, been through, believed, felt. And for some of you, it's been probably an eye-opening experience. But now today, Brandon and I didn't know this. And what's crazy is this is airing on the five-year anniversary date. There's a lot of significance and a lot of this interview and just the timeliness of it. But Brandon, if you were to talk and kind of close, if you were to talk to yourself at 20, you know, your 20-year-old self would have probably told you, well, I like to screw off, right? Like you wouldn't have been interested at that point. And you had to learn and come to the low before you'd listen. If there is someone listening 
like your mom who has a son or a daughter who's just struggling, or if there is that son or daughter listening, if you were to throw a Hail Mary for what could you say to potentially reach them, what would that be? Unfortunately, with the disease of addiction, it's such a case-by-case scenario. Right? I really wish that it was a black and white, one size fits all, because then we could actually come up with a solution to this terrible pandemic that we find ourselves in. Um, but what I would suggest is that that you, you sometimes you don't say anything at all. You just let them talk and listen. Um, and what I've learned in my experience is that I never talk to them or at them, but simply with them. I meet them where they're at, not where I believe they should be or where I think they're expected to go. Um, we meet them where they're at and we, we, we work together collectively um, as one to, to figure out a, a plan to, to help get them out of it. Um, I also I work in, in the world of recovery and, and in the world of helping people find help. So if, if it's okay, I'd like to share with the viewers my personal number that they can call me and my team at, and, and we will do the best that we can with what we have, uh, resources available to, to get the, them or their loved ones the help that not only they need, but more so deserve. And, and that phone number is 610-635-9092. Yeah, and I'm going to put links to your website, the resources, the phone number, and the show notes. So if you're listening to this or watching it, whether the video cast or the podcast, we'll have those resources. Thank you so much, Brandon. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this question, but I don't want it to sound offensive at all. But what's different this time? Like we listen to your story and we can hear what's different. But today, so I can talk to you in six months or in five years and you're still clean and you're still moving forward for God. What are the things you're doing, the practical steps today to ensure that that life is victorious? Yeah. yeah. Um, How am I securing my investment? (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, I mean like a lot of your friends, even they're coming out of the same background, the same struggles. And it's hard to say goodbye to a friend. I mean, I have friends from my childhood. I love, but we well, just the thing is, is, right, when, when you get sober and early sobriety, they say, you know, you need to change people, places, and things. And the reality is that, like, for me, I, I didn't uh, um, I didn't really have to change much because what happened is, is that in staying sober, my interest had changed. The things that I like to do and who I did them with had changed. So I didn't have to go back to my old drinking and drugging buddies and be like, we can't hang. Because the reality is, is that they don't really want to do what I'm doing at that point in their life. And I definitely don't want to do what they're doing. So it's really no love loss. I still love them just as much and I'm still their friend just as much. It's just that we're kind of on two different paths and two different pages, two different books. So it's, it's really no harm, no foul there. But what I do to secure my sobriety on a daily basis is is I listened to what they told me in the beginning of sobriety. And what that was is they said, look, stick to the basics, kids. So God willing, you never have to go back to the basics. Um, so I have a sponsor. I have sponsees. I take people through the 12 steps. Uh, and most importantly, I have a conscious contact with the God of my understanding. Uh, meaning every day I get on my knees and I start my day out that way. And every day I end my my day on my knees and, and asking him in the morning and thanking him in the evening and, and that's that's really who, who 
who's done for me everything that you see now is is the god of my understanding my higher power um and that's who gets all the credit the, the moment i start thinking that i did this that i'm the almighty that's that's when i get back to what we talked about earlier my devices which is brandon's anonymous brandon sponsors brandon brandon's god and then it's only a matter of time before i'm drinking and drugging again yeah and that's so good man whenever we submit and we're really at that that humility god yeah. just loves us where totally that's well, it let me ask you another question if you don't mind it's ringing in my head you were for years on the side of the addict people trying to help what's it like now being the person who cares and trying to reach the addicts how how does that the struggle the frustration what's that feel like being well, on the other it, side it's what they told me is that my defects could become my assets with the shift of perceptions so the very same thing that was killing me and my family for years now now provides me a lifeline to not only for myself to stay sober but to help the masses Right. Because what happens is I put my number out there and people see my story. They hear my story. They've read my story uh, and, and books and tabloids and movies. And they know that my story holds depth and weight. It's, it's the real deal. It's, it's not me giving a bunch of uh, hypothesis or educated guess on what may or may not happen if you choose to smoke weed. Like, so what happens is remember how I started out and I said that I'm defiant by nature. I hate authority and I will never conform unless it becomes my idea. When I am open and public as I am about my story and, and someone watches it and they say, if that guy can do it, there's no reason that I can't. And they pick their phone up and they call my number. Can you help me? The terms of their contract have now changed because for the first time or maybe the 10th time, it's now become their idea. And when it becomes our idea, like my 13th treatment center, I excel at a rapid pace. You know what I mean? So, so. I don't even remember where I was going with that, but. Well, I was just saying, what's it like to be on the other side when you're oh, trying yeah. to help? So, I mean, so I don't know much about much when it comes to the world, right? I can't tell you how to produce, you know, I, I can't tell you how to, uh, how to perform brain surgery uh, or, or an extract a, a, a rotted tooth. Uh, I can't give you legal advice, but what I can tell you, the one thing I know through and through is the disease of addiction and alcoholism. I believe that my God took me on the path that I went on to become his messenger in this journey that I now find myself on today. It makes sense to me why someone would prefer to sit out there and continue to drink and drug as opposed to accept my help. I get it. It makes complete sense. I'm the best devil's, I'm the best devil's advocate you could find. <laughs> yeah. But for those people listening, reach out to Brandon. Check out the website. Please. Yeah. It's a, you go to... Uh, brandonnovak.com it's all one word that's my whole that's all my stuff there so you can check out what I'm up to where I'm at what's going on in my world um, and as well reach me directly at that number I just gave to you and for you today again I'm not going to put words in your mouth would you say that you know you've had the money you've had the houses you've you know the stuff you've had the people the women but being clean and living life now as much as your mind lied to you in the past saying, oh, what, you know, you need that next hit, you need the heroin, would you say that you're living your best life now, clean? Oh, absolutely. I always say that sobriety has given me everything that drugs and alcohol ever promised me. 
Yeah. Been happier in my life. That's awesome, man. So, all right, you've been amazing and remarkable. You've shared your past with us. We've kind of talked about today. Where's Brandon going in the future? Where, 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 how can we as the listener help you, my friend? Um, again, as I always say, I walked into this process with eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant, a needle, a spoon, and a restraining order that my mother just had served against me. So uh, when I want to make my God laugh, I tell him my day is going to go. I, I can't tell you uh, what tomorrow brings. I can tell you that if I can literally do anything that I want, provided I put my mind to it. Literally, I believe that in my heart of hearts because of what I've, what, what the God of my understanding has been allow has allowed me to, to, to put together in a, a five year span. Um, I just know if I continue to keep my sobriety first, anything is possible. But you know, the the very near projects that are coming out is the the the, the sequel to my first book, Dream Seller. By the time this airs, that will either have just come out or already be out. Awesome. We'll look at picking it up, man. I'll put a link in the show notes if it's out in time. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Awesome, Brandon. Well, anything that we missed, any parting thoughts that you want to share with the audience? No, man, I think I've kind of encapsulated and covered everything. Good, man. Well, I appreciate you. I'm so thankful you're here. God bless, man. It was really cool walking down memory lane. Yeah, dude, definitely. And hopefully we can uh, get together someday and, you know, continue the conversation. So, for yeah, man, for you, the listener out there, check out the show notes, get a hold of Brandon. You can ask me any questions. Um, Again, for something like this, I'll point you right to Brandon or someone who can help you. But we love you. The whole reason Brandon and I just spent this time was to help you. Uh, And there's no other reason. The purpose of this show is to glorify God and to do that by helping people grow, to help you grow, to help me grow, to help Brandon grow. We are far from perfect. We're far from done. And like Brandon said so eloquently, man, God has a special plan for us. He loves us and he's in control. We just got to let go and leave each day the best we can. So Brandon, thanks for being here. To the listeners and viewers, thank you for being here. We love you. And like this show says, listen, do, and repeat for life. This is Dave Pasquale with Remarkable People Podcast. Until next time. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life.